Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, friends. This is your host, Dr. Dub Carlin, here at the K Factor, where K equals kindness and the factors are all the things that lead to it. I am so excited about today's interview. You know, I know I love every episode of this show, but truthfully, I love some episodes more than others because of who my guest is. And when I know, I've got a great personality on the phone who really knows how to engage in dynamic conversation and help me deliver to you a show that's going to rock your world. I am just lit. So I'm going to introduce you to my really good friend, Valda Ford, who is a fascinating woman. She has got a persona that is calming and yet so motivating kind of reminds me of Maya Angelou. She's got a voice that is beautiful and soothing and can sing you into, I don't know, calm and beauty and peace. And she has got a brain that is nonstop, large and looming, and a life story that is just fascinating. Today we're going to hit on a few topics, but the one that I have been posting about is a talk that she gives and is one that she and I are going to be teaming up on, inviting thousands of people to come and attend, and it's called Sex is Not for Sissies. (laughs) Good morning, Valda. How are you? Good morning, Dr. Deb. I'm well, and I hope you are. I am. It's a beautiful day. It's a balmy summer day. The sun is shining. I'm awake, alive, functional, movable, breathing, and, you know, like, it's good when it starts out like that. (laughs) Yes. Number one, that we're up and moving, and secondly, that we get to talk with people that we like. Yay. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So I gave us this great introduction about who you are and your life journey and then told everybody that we are talking about together what you have been doing solo, which is sex is not for sissies. What does that mean, sex is not for sissies? That's an interesting question, and the The wording came from my conversations, especially with one woman, but basically with a lot of women who would come up to me after I did seminars on how to live, laugh, and love, and they would invariably come to me and talk about their love lives. And one woman in particular talked about having a new partner after being married for 40 or 50 years and her concerns So as I tried to talk her through what she needed to do to, one, relax, enjoy herself, but most importantly, to be safe, she did a whole lot of whining, just whine and whine. Oh, I can't do that. So ultimately, I said, if you want to have love in your life, you have to be courageous. If you want to have sex in your life, you have to be smart because sex is not for sissies, and that just stuck. Yeah, no kidding. What is it? What, why do people get whiny about sex? What is it that makes people behave like that? What is that? I believe that we live in such a sexualized culture right now that everyone thinks that everyone else 
knows about sex, that they have a really good understanding of what all of the intricacies of what we call sex happen to be, whether it is from the dating part to the making love part to how to to not get hurt to how to not get diseases. Everyone thinks that everyone else knows it. And so that one person believes he or she doesn't know and is embarrassed about what they don't know or mm. has has been taught really, really poorly. As most people I talk to say, they either got no sex education or they didn't get any sex education that they would be willing to pass on to anyone else. So imagine we are a culture, a country of people who are very ignorant about sex. So in the case of this woman who had been married to one man, her first and only lover for decades, when he died, of course, that would be tough for anyone to start over. But now she's starting off in the dating scene. She's over 60 years of age, and she doesn't have any idea of the issues that are part of the dating scene these days. So she doesn't understand that there are people who are sexual predators who come after people who are elderly who might have a few dollars after a spouse has died or that there are diseases like HIV that were not in play when she got married. And because she's never had a different partner, she only knows the lovemaking style of the person that she was with. So this new fellow was talking to her about things that she worried about whether they were illegal, immoral, or unethical. And let me tell you, they were as vanilla as they come. Mm. Wow. Wow. So where is it that people learn? Because this is, you know, this is really huge. I mean, people don't. I've never been a person who talks about my sex life with girlfriends or guys that I'm friends with. You know, just I guess if I if I had a problem with something, I might try to figure out who to turn to. But um, I always just kept it with my partner. So are we making a mistake when we just keep it with our partner? Oh, by the way, I would read books. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you have you have the thing where you ask the question, how are people getting educated? Well, number one, mm-hmm. they aren't really getting educated. They're finding out little bits here and there. And you know the old saying, when you know a little bit, sometimes you know enough to get yourself in trouble. Right. So if you look at any TV show, especially after 9 p.m., if you look at any HBO special or if you look at almost any music videos by anyone who's younger than 30, you're going to see a lot of sex being used to sell the product, sex being used to enhance the movie. And kids especially, and unfortunately adults, are also thinking that they're learning according to what they're seeing. So if Mm -hmm. there's a movie that's suggesting that everyone should have uh, sex on the first date because if you don't, that means you're a chicken or you're not in the in crowd, then there are people who will feel stressed to do that. Now, if they haven't had any education beforehand about what is safe for them psychologically as well as physically, mm-hmm. they can get in a whole lot of trouble. So imagine if you're feeling ashamed or embarrassed or, as I've been told since I'm over 50, that 
I should just be happy to be with whatever man shows any favor to me. So if it's, uh, you know, I'm not in the the place anymore that I can be selective, I have been told. And there are plenty of women. Oh, yes, I know. But there are plenty of women in this age group who believe that. They might unfortunately be divorced at 40, even 40. Some 40-year-olds feel like, wow, they gave their best years to their man, and now they're out there alone. Well, they just don't understand that the best years are yet to come, and why settle for anything? But if you've been told over and over again, and if you have not had a lot of prospects for dates, and someone comes along, then maybe you feel like if if you're going to keep them, that you have to give them what they're asking for. But mm. many women don't know because they haven't been taught that men in general, and I know this is a generalization and I don't like to use them, but most men do tell me that they really are going to ask for sex most of the time, but they don't expect you to give it to them. They want <laughs> the chase. They love that. <laughs> you know, who's not going to ask for it? If I walked up to a Rolls Royce dealership and said, hey, I'd like to have that car, I don't expect anyone to hand me the keys. Uh, he might say, yeah, well, go work some more and sell a few million books and come back, and then you can buy this car. But it's just like that. Just because we see something and we want something doesn't mean we should get something without working for it. And unfortunately, women in today's society are putting themselves in the position of not understanding that and therefore giving of themselves way too early to people who don't deserve them. Because our life and our love is a gift, and it's not a gift to be given to every person. And <laughs> we don't. that... There we go. That's the punchline. I don't understand, particularly for women who are over 40, let alone over 50 or over 60, who don't remember the values that they were raised on. I was certainly raised on that value, on, the, on, the, on those set of values, and I am proud to say I've never had a sexual-only relationship or or a sexual encounter that was outside of a monogamous relationship where we were in love and had proclaimed our dedication and loyalty and exclusivity to one another. So even though I haven't gone around and had conversations with gal pals or guys that I was friends with about my sexual life, I've had so many people both privately and probably a lot more because I'm a psychologist, come to me and talk to me about not their glee, their happiness with sex, but their trauma, particularly people, and not just women, but some men, but women in particular who go out dating and (laughs) on the very first outing, they're having sexual intercourse with their date, and then they're wondering why, they go out a half a dozen, seven, ten times, and then the guy evaporates from their life, and they're feeling like they were falling for this guy, and they don't understand what happens. And I start having conversation with them about the reality of the dynamics physiologically as well as psychologically and emotionally between men and women, and they look at me like I'm a prude. And I think... uh I'm not the one who's sitting here crying about the scenario. Where, what's happened to those values, Valda? Well, I can't tell you what's happened to the values, but I, my suspicion is that we have fewer and fewer people 
who know enough to counteract the information. So let me give you an example. I talk to parents about what they should talk to their younger kids about, and they Mm -hmm. are always surprised what they should talk to their kids about, and they should be because when I started to do this work, when I started to get my certifications and training on talking about sex education, sexually transmitted disease prevention, pregnancy prevention, all of those things, I had no idea, even as a registered nurse for 35 years, I had no idea of some of the things that young people were encountering. So it didn't surprise me that their parents didn't know. So say, for example, young kids are being told things like by their parents, you know, don't get pregnant, don't get a disease. And sometimes that's the extent of their sex education. They have some things in school that may or may not be good. The curriculums may be terrible. They may be taught by people who are not interested in teaching it or are are uncomfortable teaching it. So they're Mm -hmm. happy to move along and not allow for dialogue and conversation, which is where the real learning takes place. They just lecture and keep going. Then the kids think that they know better than the teachers anyway. And then the kids will convince themselves that, okay, my mom told me don't get pregnant and don't get a disease, so I know if, The only way I can get pregnant is by having vaginal intercourse, so I won't have that. And some smart kids somewhere along the way, smart and nefarious, by the way, suggested that as long as you're not having vaginal sex, then you're not having sex. So if you have oral sex or if you have anal sex, that's not really sex because you can't get pregnant. So we have young kids now who are feeling coerced because peer pressure. They're feeling coerced to have oral and anal sex because it's not really sex and because the boy says, if you love me, you'll do this, or the girl says, if you love me, you'll do this. And so they think they're working around the pregnancy game, and they might be doing that, but they are not working around the disease game. So parents, I mean, think about it. If you're already stressed out because you found out that your young daughter has started puberty at age 9 and your young son at age 10, the conversation you're going to have with them is not going to be don't have anal sex and don't have oral sex because that's not in your mind that is anything you to worry about. And then you look at the the whole idea of now that we have smartphones that you can have these predators that are out there looking for these little kids that they can find on Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and other places that they pretend to be young people just like them and convince them to meet them. And then there's all sorts of very bad acts that take place from rape to kidnapping to murder. And how can you warn your children about that if you don't know it happens? So the sexual revolution continued to take place, and many people thought that it happened and they had the T-shirt and the hat and they didn't have to worry about it anymore. Unfortunately, it's evolving as fast as our computer skills are evolving and as fast as people can think of new things to do that are bad. And then Mm. in the adult range, we're feeling like, well, we should know this, and who, who is there to ask? Who is there to ask? I mean, the sex educator is not one that anyone has ever been sent to, <laughs> except in trying to keep them from getting a sexually transmitted disease or get pregnant. There's no sex educator out there 
that's helping them with understanding what they should demand in order to have pleasure, how they should know their bodies, how they should be in control, how they should take care of themselves psychologically and physically and financially. All of these are dynamics that no one is teaching. So how should anyone know? Well, they're going to know if they come to hear us. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> so you know, very one true. Of, yeah, one of the things that I love about the dynamic between you and I is that you have got such a um well our training our training is very aligned even though uh we've got two different sets of training, you in uh public health and in nursing and me in psychology, both of us with a lot of time spent in medicine and then with both of us traveling around to different places in the world and trying to understand human beings everywhere on the planet and loving people and wanting them to be psychologically well, physically well, and looking at sex and sex education, the sexual experience and becoming sophisticated and comfortable about it is a really important part of well-being. I don't think that it's ever been added to the formula in terms of wellness and well-being. People usually think, well, wellness is about your weight, it's about your cholesterol Mm -hmm. level, it's diabetes, your smoking, and and your cardiovascular issues. And then it kind of stops. Yes, I agree with you. I know I have on my Sex is Not for Sissies Facebook page, I talk to people all the time and I ask different questions about what kind of things are going on in your life. And typically they may talk about any number of things, but they sometimes think that sex is this animal that sits out there by itself that doesn't have anything to do with anything else. And my colleagues who are sex therapists will say all the time that people come in to want to get their sex lives fixed, and they don't understand that their poor sex life is just an outcome of the bad life overall that they're experiencing, and they work on other things. They happen to also be incredibly comfortable talking about sex and the issues around sex, but they are trained psychologists who are people who are talking to them about how to live a good life and how to protect yourself and how to communicate and how to love yourself and all of those things that you talk about all the time where you are a person who will who will say basically I want to have my flowers right now don't put them on my grave and you tell people that I love you and I think about you and how wonderful people are and you know people get into relationships and they think well we did all that work now we don't have to do that anymore we just do all the stuff that married people do or committed people do, and they they forget the romance. And the romance is what got them there, and the romance is what will keep them there. But unfortunately, they, especially if you have sex, imagine if you go on a date and you have sex the first date. Well, what do you know about the person except whether or not they chew too loudly and, and if they treat the waiters well? You might not know anything else about them except for 30 to 40 minutes of stuff you learned over dinner, you don't know where their heart is. You don't know where their passions lie. You don't know if they love dogs or if they would send $10 to Haitian refugees. You don't know anything about them. But just those good hormones get up there and you think, oh, this is wonderful. I feel great. Let's do this thing. 
And then you wonder why you can't communicate because instead of in the using the analogy of a baseball game, you just went straight for the home run. You didn't bother to wind up, warm up, get to first base, stop and think about it. Because if you had, you might never have given your body to that person, and now you feel badly about it. Yes. You know, I, I remember actually being in um, college and having girls talk about going out to bars and meeting somebody and getting drunk and and having um, having intercourse with, with these guys. And and i i remember i my jaw would literally drop and i and i remember you know sort of leaning forward in the conversation saying how did you know that he wouldn't hurt you i mean how did you know that he didn't have a disease how did you know that he wasn't going to laugh at your body i mean mm-hmm. how, like why would you be so vulnerable and the answers that i got were what are you talking about i didn't even think <laughs> about any of that really yeah. I mean, how can you not think about all of that? I don't, you know, when I when I stop and I and I have conversations with people who are coming to me with their their problems in this department, I will ask them, "Would you invite this person that you have slept with now seven times from the first time that you met them until you know?" two nights ago or three weeks ago when they stopped calling you, would you invite them to your house for Thanksgiving? No, we don't know each other well enough. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> no. I know. Because and I don't want to bring them around my right kids now. or I don't want to introduce them to my family, really. But yet right. you, so your your kids and your family are more important than your body, your mm. heart, your spirit, your soul, your psyche, and people don't, I'm generalizing, but the people who are in trouble on this topic don't stop and think about it. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. And the thing is, when I speak to a lot of people, and the age almost doesn't matter, I'm finding that they are so very vulnerable and they're so busy trying to be brave and look like they're just as savvy as the next person that they end up getting into a lot more trouble. And now with the Fifty Shades phenomenon where uh, people are thinking that not only do they not know people well, but they should be with people who they do not know well in a situation where there's bondage and domination and maybe some whips and chains involved. And I say, really? How yeah. do you come to the conclusion that that is okay? And I think whatever your sexual uh, preference, fantasy, uh, predilection, whatever it is, that's your business as long as you're grown-up people who are making uh, a conscious choice and have consented to your behavior. Absolutely, I think that's your business. But there are too many people because even in the Fifty Shades program, what people didn't understand is that she was, in essence, coerced. In order to have him, she had to yield to all these different things that she would not ordinarily have done. And that is not the way to have a relationship. But people are jumping on the, it's popular, and if it's sold 200 million copies, it must mean that it's something that everyone is doing. Well, no, no one else is doing it. (laughs) 
Everyone is reading about it just like you as a forbidden fruit, but no one else is doing it, so why are you doing it? So in Sex is Not for Sissies, my whole goal is to talk to people about conscious decision-making, about Mm -hmm. thinking it through and, and helping them understand, as you do with everyone that you work with, that you are very precious and that what you have to give is yours to give. It is not just dispensable like paper towels. It is right. like a Faberge Day egg. It can be broken and it's, it cannot be replaced. So right. I, I talk to young girls who don't understand the idea of romance. They, I had one young lady to tell me the most heartbreaking thing ever. A young woman mm-hmm. said to me that her, she asked me on the radio uh, a month ago, how is it that I can get this guy that I like to notice that I like him? And so we went through some basic stuff. She's in college, a very beautiful, young, intelligent woman. And she said, I said, so what are you doing? She says, well, you know, we're in study groups together. I said, well, just accidentally touch his hand while you're reaching for something and Mm -hmm. see what he does. And she says, well, why would I do that? (laughs) My question is, well, because you want to see if he's been waiting to touch you too. I mean, it's just like the the movie analogy where the guy wants to uh, yawn and put his hand behind a girl's back. Well, it's the same right. thing. You, you're, you're touching her. I mean, you're touching him, and then you see how he responds. If he jerks his hand away, well, that's a sure sign that that's not a good thing. Yeah. If he just kind of looks up and is thinking, like, is there something going on here, then you know there is. But she said that she had been taught not to smile when she was around guys because that made her weak and that guys would take advantage of her. So she's wondering why this guy doesn't respond to her. Yeah, she's wondering why he doesn't respond to her and she won't even smile at him. Oh, my gosh. Isn't that sad? Yes, it is sad. And, you know, it really it brings me back to what you were talking about earlier in terms of when you are romancing, I, I'm romancing people every day, all day long, because I believe in my heart and in my soul and in my mind that life is a very romantic experience. And when we are living in our heart and, and thinking through our mind, why wouldn't we reach out and touch and be kind to everybody that we encounter and give ourselves an opportunity to connect to each human being that we meet in some way that is lovely. I mean, if there's an opportunity to be able to develop rapport with somebody, why do we why do we hold back from doing that? And when we get to know people and we have a friend or a business associate, why wouldn't we tell that person that we really like them? And by the way, if we really feel that we love them, why wouldn't we tell them? And it doesn't have to be, it's so funny to me when people say, oh, I really want to tell this person that I love them, but I'm afraid I'm going to chase them away. And it's like, boy, you know, the way you talk about love, it's so morose and it's so intense, (laughs) so heavy. Of course they're going to run away. It's like you're throwing a brick at their head. Why don't you just tell people? Why don't we just tell people, I just absolutely love you. I adore you. I think you are absolutely fabulous. And say it in a way that is fun and loving and friendly, and it doesn't have to be 
I want to get married this afternoon. Let's sign a prenup this evening. <laughs> mm-hmm. People I make know. it too heavy. Well, I, re- I get, I get the fact that some people are afraid to say the word love because other people who they know are yeah. just as afraid of the word as they are. So, I mean, I get that. And in order to change that mindset, then we all have to use the word more often without the expectation that saying it is going to open up the door to the kingdom, which is what some people are afraid of. If you say, I love you, and then the other person doesn't say, I love you back, then they're like crushed as if a stone fell from a great height. Instead, they should just give it in the spirit of, I'm giving you this because I want to give it to you, not because I expect something in return. But let's face it, <laughs> there are plenty of people who are expecting things in return, and they would say, I used to date a guy, actually, who would yeah. not say I love you. He wouldn't say it. Really? He he would not say it to me in person. He <laughs> would write it to me. He would... <laughs> It to me. I don't know if text was available then, but anyway, he was. He would write it to me. He would definitely write it to me, and not not often. Now, I have to say that even though he he didn't say it, and why he couldn't say it to me in person is something I'm never going to know in this life. But he showed me in every possible way that my well-being was his first thought, that my joy was what he lived for. But he couldn't say it. He had been paralyzed by it. Some point, as a psychologist, you probably know better than I do, that somewhere in his development yeah. there was some arresting going on where he said something and got a lot of pain associated with it. And now he he wants to communicate it, but he cannot. But other than that, and that's what I have to tell people sometimes, that, yeah, I'm like you. I, I'd much rather hear the words. I definitely use the words. But if you don't get too hung up on it, if they're doing everything they can, especially if they also write it to you, then you just have to say, okay, this is who he is, this is who she is. But, look, he brings me dinner when I'm hungry. He rubs my feet when I'm tired. He pays the bills, and he's great in bed. And he's a good-looking thing to hang on your arm. I mean, look, let's not be fussy. This is hilarious. Now, there is a difference between that and telling someone, I am in love with you. I am really, Mm -hmm. truly, to the core, madly in love with you. And I think that, then, is reserved. That I have said to um, a number of people in my life, "I I am sincerely in love with you. I certainly said it when I was married, and I certainly said it in in monogamous relationships where I really felt that beautiful, romantic, head over heels, Romeo and Juliet in love. And and that is beautiful. And here's here's where I'm going with this. For me, the the sexual experience our sexuality it seems to me that there is a a sad perversion in our culture and probably always has been as far back as i can think of in terms of humankind where 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 sex was also a, a perverse 
behavior, not a loving, intimate, rich behavior that was based on our 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 rich sensual gifts. And it seems to me that the most satisfying sexual relationships grow out of a comfort with one own one's own self in terms of the comfort that you have with your entire being and you said financially psychologically emotionally and physically you just feel good about yourself when you feel good about yourself then your sensual self you you are not so distracted by all those other things that you can love to touch to smell to see to feel to hear to experience and when you are engaged on that level the passion can be experienced through you with another person. And when you have two people who come together that way, you can let loose and enjoy yourself and climb into one another that really gets you to the ultimate satisfaction in a in a really healthy, intimate sexual relationship. That's what it seems like to me. Do you agree or do you think it can happen in other circumstances? Well, I think that there are some people, at least this is what some people tell me, that they are able to just turn a switch on and off, that they can totally compartmentalize this is physical and this is emotional. But that is rare. And I Mm. don't know that they're lying to me or themselves, but... This is what some people say, but in general, I find that people who have extraordinary, wonderful, and full and satisfying lives have it because every part of them is in a good place. They have Mm -hmm. discovered who they are. They're not trying to shift who they are to be the person they expect their partner to want. And yeah. I was definitely guilty of that early on. You know, what do you want for eat? Oh, I don't know. What do you want? Oh, let's have um, pig feet. Oh, yeah, I love pig feet. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, if I have to put those things in my mouth, I'm sure I'm going to throw up. But, I'm, you know, this guy likes pig feet, so let me like pig feet. Or this guy likes uh, bluegrass music. Or this guy likes just violin soloist or something. And I say, yeah, yeah, I love it. Now, I love all music, so that wasn't tough. But yeah. I found myself, like in the movie The Runaway Bride, when they yeah. asked all of her bows, why is it that, or what is it that she likes to eat? What kind of eggs does she like? And each one would say something different because she has done that. But right. I, in, a, in a wonderful class I just had in Canada about a month or so ago, there was an excellent study done by Dr. Peggy Kleinplatz, who's one of the top researchers in sex therapy and sex education. And she found that people who had the most amazing, fulfilling, and satisfying sex lives were typically people who had been together 20-plus years and, you know, in the same relationship together that they absolutely liked themselves, liked their partners, loved themselves, took care of themselves, and out of mutual respect and everything else and that thing we call love, 
they were able to fully and completely give themselves to their partners because they were not afraid of what was going to happen. They could trust them 100%. They communicated well. They weren't people who were thinking one thing and saying something else or just grunting or not speaking at all. And these were the people who developed those amazing relationships that we all want, that everyone envies. And it took a lot of work, but it it took each person understanding who they are and taking care of themselves and taking care of the other, and then great sex arose from that. And these were people who most medical people are thinking probably aren't having sex. These are people in their uh, 50s, 60s, and 70s who had had long enough to be in those relationships for that long, and they were doing exactly what everyone is hoping to get to, but everyone is thinking somehow that older people are sexless, which is ridiculous. But that is unfortunately, when you talk about why do we come to these attitudes, that is why the older woman was having such a problem with the new sex life because she had never had anyone to discuss her sex life. Mm-hmm. Um, most most medical people will tell me that they're not talking to people over 50 to ask them, are they sexually active And so if you don't ask them if they're sexually active, you're definitely not going to suggest that being sexually active is normal if you're asking Mm -hmm. them what they eat and if they exercise and whatever else, but you're not asking them if they have sex, then de facto you're saying, well, sex obviously isn't supposed to be a natural thing for you. Then they might Mm -hmm. feel embarrassed. Yes, right, exactly. You know, I think that an enormous component my observation personally and professionally is that an enormous component of healthy relationships and healthy sexual experiences and healthy sexual relationships is not only about the longevity but about appreciation mm-hmm. appreciation of yourself and, and genuine appreciation of the other person the term making love is so beautiful because if you are making love, you are really showing that other person that you love them and you appreciate them so much and it's and it's about kindness and gentility and sensuality and warmth and everything that is so beautiful and I don't know how you get that outside of a relationship outside of a relationship, (laughs) and outside of a relationship where two people are not afraid of one another, outside of a relationship where two people aren't familiar with one another, and by the way, familiar and really genuinely like each other and feel kindness towards one another. Not that I see these snotty edges that people have with one another in relationships, and I think to myself, I don't know how you even turn your back on the person in the house. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Now, like, are you afraid that a fork will end up in the back of your neck or something? Because, I mean, the two of you are just mean. Yeah. Oh, I and unfortunately, I know a lot of people who have lives that, you know, I don't even know why they even try to be together and all the reasons are bad. But, you know, when, when, we, when we talk about sex not being for sissies, that is why. Because we have totally perverted, I think, the idea of what, 
relationships are supposed to be like between people who say they adore each other. Because when we went through the sexual revolution of the 60s, make love, not war, make love anyway, let's make love while we're also stoned out of our heads, and let's be rebellious and don't let anyone tell us who we can sleep with, how often, where, under what circumstances. And because I'm really cool, I can have sex right now, and I can have sex with as many people as I want because that means I'm cool. So we have this whole generation of people who are being raised by people who believe those things, and even though they might have been hurt from those things, still don't have anyone to go to like us to talk to about what a great relationship is like and how sex is not for sissies and how you have to start with conscious decision-making. Then you have to consider what is your attitude about sex. Is it something that you've been taught was wonderful and natural and something you should enjoy for all your life or something that was necessary and you just get it done or something that's bad and just is full of the possibilities of disease and unwanted pregnancy? Then you look at the whole anatomy. The people who come to me who don't understand their genital anatomy, who don't understand how it works, where some parts are, it still amazes me. And the whole idea of romance, the whole idea of romance. And then experimentation is a great thing, but experimentation doesn't have to be whips and chains and cattle prods. It can be, let's do this touch thing where we turn off the lights and we're naked and we touch each other and we explore how we feel. And we're just doing that sensate focus where okay, we're totally only going to focus on the one sense, and how does that make you feel? And then when you know how something makes you feel, you can communicate that back to your partner who can help you get there, or you can get there on your own with nobody feeling badly about it if you do or don't, because guess what? It's just an experiment. So we're going to try again tomorrow or later today to see if, We can get to the feeling that we want because the thing that breaks my heart the very most is that when I'm on my calls with people or when I'm on the radio or when I'm doing the Sex is Not for Sissies seminars, I'm having people to say what doesn't – what does the the ultimate expression of the sexual experience feel like? And I'm saying, really? So these are people Mm -hmm. who have never had pleasure from sex They don't know what it would feel like to begin with. And if I try to help them and direct them, sometimes they don't know their anatomy and they don't want to touch themselves or someone else to touch them. They think that sex is the missionary position done in 45 minutes, quickly over with, lights off, and now let's go wash off that smelly stuff. Right, exactly. You know, um, one of the things, I agree with that 100%, and one of the things that I find really heartbreaking is when I am um, talking one-on-one with somebody, man or woman, and it's both, men and women, who talk about never having had their partner have an orgasm with them, they know that their partner has never had orgasm, or they themselves haven't. Mm-hmm. And and I don't know I don't know what is more disturbing to me because if the partner that I'm talking to is telling me that they know that their partner has never been satisfied with them, it's so heartbreaking because you can just see it, hear it and feel it 
there's a there's a ravine between them and the person that they are really trying to make love to and it's not happening. They feel inadequate. They they're thinking maybe their their partner is inadequate and trying to help them through that. Again, it's about understanding anatomy. It's understanding tenderness. It's understanding dialogue, essential conversation that people like in the example that you just gave are so afraid to say to their partner you know what, this evening, let's turn off the TV, let's hold hands and go to this other room, and let's let's play, and let's play mm-hmm. differently. Right. A phrase yeah, it's, that it's, it's really pretty sad when, uh, but, the, you know, they, they get there because they don't know how to communicate with, you, with each other. They have been told by maybe, say, if their first sex education was from someone who says, yeah, well, if they kiss you like this, if they touch your breast like this, if they put their hands right here, then, girl, you're going to feel this amazing sensation. You're going to have this nice spasm and this sense of warmth that's going to come over you, and it's going to be amazing. And they don't feel that. Now, right. now they feel like they're odd because they didn't. If they're fortunate, they can go back and say, you know, well, none of that happened, and then that person can say, Okay, well, what happened on your side? But I don't know that many people who have that person in their life who, one, is is willing to explain what they should expect other than don't get pregnant and don't get a disease. And if they don't get it, that they're also willing to sit down with them and problem solve and talk to them and discuss what happened and what didn't happen in a way that's nonjudgmental that's not humiliating, and then they can move forward to the next step. Mm -hmm. You know, another problem that I've had people present to me, both men and women, is women who have had hysterectomies, who are no Mm -hmm. longer feeling comfortable in their sexuality and no longer able to achieve pleasure to the point of orgasm, and men with prostate cancer aftermath who did not know going into treatment that there would be erectile dysfunction issues that they would be faced with. And both of these people, both of these genders, are are sitting there most of the time face-to-face with me talking about where it is they're at, relating it back to these surgeries and these procedures and treatments, mm-hmm. And being told there's nothing that can be done, and my response is always, consistently, there's always something that can be done. Mm-hmm. But why why is the medical profession failing us and itself by not preparing people with honesty and then also not paving the path? It'd be a great motivator. You know, you're going to have this lull in your sexual experience, but we're going to really get you supercharged and recharged in these other ways so that you're going to feel whole again. Because when a when a man or a woman feels like they've lost that part of their their life experience, they're sad, they're disappointed, they feel like a failure, they feel inadequate, it causes a rift between them and their partner. Why isn't anybody addressing that? Well, the... The easy answer to that is that they were never taught it. 
I can tell you that as a registered nurse, and trust me, nurses are considered to be the most trusted professionals in the country every year. I mean, Gallup does a survey every year. Nurses are considered to be the most trusted people except for uh, 9-11 when firefighters were that year, but nurses are the most trusted. However, no one tells us anything. Now, we work with people on sexual disease transmission, pregnancy, delivering babies, people talking about menopause, everything that has to do with the human body experience. But the part I was not talked about to at all, I've been to school, I've been to formal post-high school degree-granting programs four times, and not once, never, ever, no, I take that back. In my very first program, there was a woman in the program who talked to me about the fact that she felt that nursing homes did a disservice to seniors who might have sexual needs and that they kept them separated and they really did not allow them to take care of their sexual needs. That was it, that statement, that was it. Mm. I was definitely Mm. taught about how to put in a catheter and how to start an IV and how to alleviate pain. And, of course, I had about 30 hours of psych in there that I picked up some things, but we only talked about things in growth and development that got you through teenage years and that, of course, puberty might be an issue, but we still only talked about sex in terms of how to keep kids from getting pregnant and getting diseases. So there was nothing in any of my nursing classes through graduate school that talked to me about sexual pleasure, sexual desire, relationships in the family. And I just was with a group of 42 sex therapists going for uh, an intensive post-certification course, and the question was asked of them, how many of you ever had sex education that you thought was great? And none of them did. They basically, even as sex therapists, had to piece a lot of it together when they started out, and they've been going because even the sex education programs aren't as good at talking about the pleasure principle. They simply talk about the dysfunctionality, and they have to work on Now, I'm not saying this is true of all sex therapy programs, but many of those people, 42 people in my program, felt that they really had to work to get the information. And so that's where good associations like the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists comes in because they they keep those kind of things going on. But I can tell you, if a doctor, nurse, nurse practitioner, PA, psychologist, therapist did not learn this information during their training, then they are not as well versed in how to fix it. And if they, as being a part of the society, say your doctor is 30 years old or 35 years old and you're 55 years old, well, they're not going to be as comfortable talking about sex to someone who could be their parent. This is something mm-hmm. that needs to change. The whole dialogue about sex education, sex counseling needs to change so that healthcare professionals need to know what to do because many people go into the doctor's office, especially the gynecologist's office and the proctologist's office, hoping that that doctor will somehow see a neon sign floating out through their foreheads that says, please help me about my <laughs> sex life. 
and and it's not there. That sign is not glowing out, and there's no road map, and they don't ask the questions. And many people think, there was a person who said to me, um, when the question was asked about orgasm, she said, well, she knew she'd had them because she'd been pregnant, and how else could she get pregnant if she hadn't been having orgasms? Or, you know, I, I ask a question. I mean, I, I don't even want to go into all the things. I'm writing this book now on seven secrets to seriously satisfying sex. And one part of it is all the bad stuff that we've learned that we have to get out of our heads. And so therapists are just like everyone else. They have dumb stuff in their heads. And unless they intentionally go and learn how to talk to people about sex or have a sex educator as a part of their practice, then a lot of this isn't going to happen. Yeah. I haven't been asked if I was sexually active since I was maybe 38. Wow. You know, and um, I've been to three doctors this Mas- week. <laughs> <laughs> what did Masters and Johnson do for us? What Masters and Johnson did was they decided to take sex, which was seen to be, was, which was seen as a necessary evil, or as just something that you know, we do to make small people, but nothing necessarily that was for pleasure, and they wanted to study the sexual experience, so they did. They figured out that what we knew about sex was only the tip of the iceberg to what there was to know about sex, and they also legitimized talking about and researching and understanding sex because they used really good scientific methods. They really did do the work to not just have some people tell them what they thought, but to use some instruments to be able to to check skin response and uh, breathing and heart rate and all those things that were happening during the sexual act to determine what was actually going on, what were some of the things that made it happen. And they actually brought talking about sex into the real realm of medical research. However, it still it still isn't up there like cancer or diabetes. I mean, when you go to the average conference, and I go to plenty of them, you still are not going to see a topic on sex or how we should talk to our patients about sex. As a matter of fact, maybe that's something I should be putting out there and and getting into some medical conferences to see if I can talk to them about how they should be talking to their patients about sex. And when I talk to health educators, they basically said to me, would I teach them how to talk to their patients about sex? So the education is not there for the people who the, the patients go to you thinking that you know this, but you don't. So the the people who are the healthcare providers actually need to have this education first. And what what did the height report do for us? Wow! Now you are going back a minute. I have to even think about that. That's falling right out of my brain. What do yeah, you remember about re- it? The height report was a fascinating book that came out, and. They, their goal was to teach people about, it was written by Sheer Height, and it was titled A Nationwide Study of Female Sexuality. And this really did come out eons ago. And mm-hmm. as a matter of fact, it was published in 1977. 
six. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. probably the last report that came out, and it was about women, not about men, and about mm-hmm. how women needed to be satisfied. And um, I don't know that there's ever been another book like it, and I don't know that there's ever been another another book that's ever been written that's ever been for men. Yeah, people- she, well, you know, she wrote about the female sexuality and her work built on what Masters and Johnson had to do and what she did is she tried to focus on how sexual experience was regarded and what it meant to them. So she concluded that 70% of women don't have orgasms through in and out thrusting intercourse. Now, we know that now. So hers was the one that actually helped us, even though Masters and Johnson could go through what the sexual response was and, and how you have stimulation and then arousal and then pleasure and release, she talked about the fact that, yes, that was true, but, and we know now, uh, 70 to 80% of women cannot achieve orgasm through typical missionary position stuff. It just doesn't happen because they need stimulation more directly. And so hers was really great, and it played a crucial role in the sexual response but height helped us understand that we had to move forward into the whole idea about it's more than just mechanics. So mm-hmm. she took it from the, the sheer clinical, cold clinical work of Masters and Johnson, which is funny to me that they don't call it Masters and Masters because ultimately they married each other. But <laughs> anyway, it's it's, the the good thing is, and now with the work of people like Klein Platts and others who are moving forward to say the the sexual response that was understood by Johnson and by Height is not necessarily all there is to the sexual response. So they got the ball rolling, but we're still probably fifty to a hundred years out, just looking at the way things are going and the fact that sexual studies are not funded like other things, you know. I mean, you get money for cancer research, but you can't get money to understand how to have an orgasm. They just figure, like, that's your personal problem where we know it's not. Rivalda, (laughs) we've got two minutes left, just a little Mm -hmm. under two minutes. I want you to give everybody your name and how best to find you out here on the Internet. Okay, well, I'm Valda Ford. That's a V-A-L-D-A, Ford, like the car. The best way to find me is through my Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash sexisnotforsissies, or my website by the same name, sexisnotforsissies.com. You can also email me at valda at valdaford.com, and I'll be very happy to get back in touch with you Look out for upcoming webinars, seminars, and we can do private consultations. Far out. Well, they're going to cut us off here on Blog Talk Radio, but it's been an absolute pleasure to have you here today. Friends, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. It will be uploaded onto Blog Talk Radio and iTunes, and it will remain there forever. This is (laughs) your host, Dr. Deb Carlin, signing off for today. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, thank you, thank you.